What I'm going to talk about tonight is uh, a controversial issue in proportionality in the resort to war. I say it's controversial. It's controversial among just war theorists and people who write about the ethics of war. To other people, it's probably completely uncontroversial because they never thought about it. But um, uh, interestingly, the international law of war has only a very vague um, and non-statutory uh, condition of proportionality in the resort to war. There's really nothing about it. It's just that every now and then the uh, International Court of Justice will say something like, this war was disproportionate <coughs> in relation to the ends that were sought, but they don't have any standard by which to judge proportionality. And as I said, there's no statutory provision for for making these judgments, so there are no criteria. It's just a kind of appeal to some vague notion. I think the reason that there is really very little uh, about proportionality in the resort to war in the tradition of the law of armed conflict is just that it would be impossible to say anything particularly determinate about proportionality with respect to the whole of a war, especially at the outset, uh, in a way that it uh, could ground a condemnation, and in particular, uh, an enforceable condemnation. Traditional just war theory has a longer and more robust tradition of recognizing a proportionality constraint on the resort to war, though it's usually applied only to wars fought elsewhere, namely wars of collective defense and wars of humanitarian intervention. That's because it's it's usually uh, assumed that a war of national self-defense is going to be justified and therefore it must be proportionate. In general, people don't think that the right of national self-defense against wrongful aggression is constrained by a requirement not to cause excessive harm to the aggressors themselves. But that's odd because there's a widely recognized proportionality constraint on the harm that one does to an aggressor in individual self-defense. This is a, a part of the criminal law in all jurisdictions, I think. I mean, th there have been times when proportionality was repudiated in certain uh, jurisdictions, but um, not anymore. Uh, the idea here is that um, if the only way I can defend myself from being pinched by a bully is to kill him, I can't do that. That would be disproportionate harm to the person who threatens me. And it seems to me that there's really got to be a kind of parallel constraint in the resort to war as well. So I want to discuss some cases in which I think that may be true. There are some cases of wrongful aggression in which aggressors really have no interest in killing, enslaving, expelling, or even physically harming anybody. What they want is instead something like enhanced political influence or control over another people, access to natural resources, possession of some disputed territory, something of that sort. In these cases, the use of military force by the aggressor is a means only. What that means is that the use of force by the aggressor will be conditional on whether they meet with forcible resistance by the potential victim. 
So their unconditional aims are these minor, lesser aims. And the threat to use force is really conditional on, on whether they have to fight in order to get them. So if the potential victims uh, capitulate and just give the aggressor what the aggressor wants, there needn't be a war at all. And that's because aggressors who only want territory or resources or whatever are much happier to get those things that they want without having to fight a costly war in order to secure them. So whether or not there's going to be a war really does, in these cases, depend on the reaction of the potential victim. Give you an example of a near contemporary instance of what one might think of as lesser aggression. That would be Argentina's invasion of the Falkland Islands in 1982. In that case, Argentina wanted to assert its sovereignty over these islands, which were in possession of Great Britain. Um, the islands had 1,800 human inhabitants at the time. There were more casualties in that war than there were inhabitants of the islands. And so you might think that this is arguably a war that was disproportionate. It's certainly a war in which the stakes were comparatively small. So the question I want to discuss tonight is whether it's permissible to go to war to defend these lesser rights or to defend people against these lesser harms that would be uh, inflicted by lesser aggressors. And what I have in mind here are threats only to political sovereignty, territorial integrity, and so on, rather than threats to people's lives, at least in the first instance. And this problem, the problem of whether war can be justified in these instances, I call the problem of lesser aggression. Now what most people think is that despite there being an ad bellum proportionality constraint, it's all, almost always permissible and often morally obligatory to go to war in defense against aggression, even lesser aggression. This is the view of traditional just war theory and it is the view of the law of armed conflict. That is, people think in the law and in morality that there is always a right of self-defense and that right very seldom yields to considerations of proportionality. Traditional just war theorists take it that uh, it's intuitively obvious that this is so, that there's always this right of defense, that people can defend themselves by military means against wrongful aggression. And they criticize uh, people who take a more individualist approach to the morality of war on the ground that an individualist approach to the morality of war can't support this intuition can't defend the intuition that defense against lesser aggression is always justified. Um, they say this because they take it as obvious that an individualist understanding of the ethics of war can't recognize the full importance of the preservation of uh, state sovereignty and territorial integrity because these are somehow collective goods. And some of the individualist theorists of the ethics of war um, not only accept this implication but actually embrace it. They say, yes, this is right. That's the true conclusion. War is often not justified against wrongful aggression. In fact, it's very often not justified in response to wrongful aggression, provided the aggression 
is below a certain threshold. Uh, I'm going to defend an intermediate position here. I think this is an area where our intuitions aren't terribly trustworthy. I think the traditional just war theorists are quite wrong about this to think that state sovereignty and territorial integrity always justify killing. I think that some of the revisionist individualist just war theorists are also wrong to think that um, it's almost always necessary to capitulate in the face of lesser aggression. First of all, what I want to do is uh, give you a, a, an accounting of some of the characteristics of lesser aggression that help to explain my conviction that the traditional view about this matter is wrong. The traditional view being that it's always or virtually almost always uh, permissible to engage in uh, military defense against wrongful aggression. So here are some of the characteristics. Uh, the main one, as I mentioned, is that the harms that are threatened by lesser aggression, at least in the first instance, are lesser harms. They're the kind of harms that outside the context of war would not justify killing. That is, the harms that individuals would suffer, um, uh, diminished wealth, diminished freedom, that kind of thing, are in general not the kind of harms to individuals that would justify killing in self-defense. They would justify violent self-defense, but in general not killing in self-defense. Yet the harms that would be inflicted by military defense against lesser aggression, of course, include killing and maiming and wounding and so on. What's more, the number of people who would have to be killed and maimed uh, in order to defeat lesser aggression in many cases um, would be very great. So the number of people killed would be quite large and most of these people, or in many cases all of them, would be quite young. They would be people who would have a lot to lose. They would be people with, in many cases, small children, parents. They would be people who are not highly culpable. They are not criminal types usually who make up the armies of, of different countries. They're ordinary people who have enlisted in the army or been conscripted for a variety of reasons. So these are not evil people in general. As I say, they are young and a large number of them would have to be killed. What's more, in the case of each of these lesser aggressors, um, the contribution that he would make <coughs> to the harm, the lesser harm that any individual person would suffer in the country that's the target of the aggression would be absolutely tiny. This is in the absence of military resistance by the victims, and that's what we need to consider in the first instance to determine the liability of these uh, lesser aggressors to be harmed by military defense. So in the absence of military defense by the offenders, or by, the, uh, by the victims, each of the lesser aggressors would inflict only a very tiny harm or would contribute an only a very tiny uh, amount to the harm that any particular individual would suffer. Defense against lesser aggression will, of course, not only involve the killing of large numbers of enemy combatants, but it's almost inevitable that it will involve the side effect harming and killing of innocent bystanders as well, as tends to happen in almost all modern wars. Interestingly, the Falklands War was an exception to this because it was a war fought uh, largely at sea, and to the extent that there were land battles, they took place in this 
uh, very sparsely inhabited and remote set of islands in the South Atlantic. Defensive war against lesser aggression would also, as I mentioned, provoke counterviolence by the aggressors so that not only will aggressing soldiers be killed and some civilians presumably on the aggressing side, but also a large number of soldiers on the defending side will be killed and uh, almost certainly some civilians on the defending side as well. So there's going to be lots of killing and injuring on both sides. Lots of people on both sides are going to be killed and injured if there is a defensive war against lesser aggression. And finally, there's always the possibility that the defending population or the defending army will get defeated, in which case all of the killing and wounding and, and so on will have been in vain and the aggressors will get what they wanted in the first place and may end up being more vindictively disposed towards the victim population than they would have been had the victim society simply capitulated. So I hope that that explains a bit why there is a genuine question of proportionality here in the resort to war in response to lesser aggression. You might think that this is a problem of limited significance, that it applies only in the case of wars like the Falklands War, but given the description I gave earlier, that's not actually true. This problem arises whenever it's the case that the aims that the aggressor seeks include only these goals that would involve lesser harm to people and not killing, enslavement, torture, expulsion, <coughs> and so on. So it act the problem arises quite frequently. I think it's characteristic of most of the European wars of the 18th and the 19th centuries. Um, I think it applies to the American invasion of Iraq, which I think was an unjust war. <coughs> it wasn't the case that the United States was interested in killing uh, large numbers of people or dispossessing large numbers of people or enslaving them or expelling them or whatever. Now given that this is a problem of proportionality, it's per perhaps worth uh, making a distinction here about the different forms of proportionality. I think this is quite important. There are, I think, two different types of proportionality. One I call narrow proportionality, and by that I mean proportionality in the harms that are caused to people who are potentially liable to be harmed. In this case, the aggressors themselves, wrongdoers, people who are posing a threat of wrongful harm to people. They are potentially liable to some harm, but if one harms them in excess of the harm to which they are morally liable, then that harm is, I say, disproportionate in the narrow sense. And I hope you can see that this is a proportionality constraint on a particular type of justification for the infliction of harm. It's a constraint on a liability justification for harming people. Or it, it may well also be a constraint on a desert-based justification for harming people. There's another proportionality constraint, which is the one that is thought to be the only proportionality constraint in the conduct of war. I call this the wide proportionality constraint, and this is the constraint governing the infliction of harm on people who are not liable to be harmed at all. Uh, as I say, this is, this is the constraint that you will find mostly referred to in the literature on war. If, however, you look at the literature on individual self-defense, and in particular the legal literature on self-defense, their discussions of proportionality are predominantly focused on the harm that will be caused to the aggressor himself or to the criminal or whatever. 
<coughs> Julian, could I get a glass of water, perhaps? Here's, here's a cup. Oh, oh that's easy. Um, I think it's important to distinguish between these two types of proportionality, which is something that I think hasn't been done in the past, and it's important thanks, because, <coughs> as I say, they are constraints on <coughs> different types of justification. One is a constraint on a liability or desert-based justification for harming. The second, the wide proportionality condition, is a constraint on a lesser evil justification for harming people, or in the law, a necessity justification. Although people are reluctant to acknowledge that a war of national self-defense could be disproportionate in any sense, everybody under pressure will agree, I think, that a war of national self-defense could, in principle, be disproportionate in the wide sense, that is, in the, in the harm that it would cause to innocent people. So again, take a go back to the Falklands War, suppose it had uh, not been Argentina but the Soviet Union that had invaded the Falklands Islands and suppose that there had been a very high probability that if Britain resisted the Soviet Union's attempt to annex the Falklands Islands by means of war that it, there would have been a very high probability of escalation to global nuclear war or to nuclear war between Britain and the Soviet Union. If that had been the case then I think people would agree military resistance would be disproportionate because it might kill millions of people in the Soviet Union and Britain over just for the sake of these tiny islands. <coughs> Interestingly though, the traditional theory of the just war and the international law of war don't recognize any proportionality constraint on the harm that may be done to enemy combatants in war. So they really don't recognize a narrow proportionality constraint either on the resort to war or on the conduct of war. I think probably the explanation for that is that both in just war theory and in the law of armed conflict, it's presupposed that every combatant during a time of war, every combatant on both sides, is liable to be killed at any time. And if every combatant in war is liable to be killed, there's really no scope in practice for disproportionality. You can kill them all, and that's proportionate, according to the law. There are a few restrictions on what may be done to enemy combatants, but in general they are not proportionality restrictions. So in the past, and at present, proportionality in the conduct of war is thought to be concerned only with harms caused to non-combatants. I think this is a mistake. I think that both narrow and wide proportionality are relevant to <coughs> understanding the permissibility of individual self-defense, and I think they're both relevant to understanding the proportionality of war, both in the resort to war and in the conduct of war. It's just that it's harder to find genuine instances of disproportionality and harms to enemy combatants. But it's, it, it's, it's easy to think of hypothetical examples. You can imagine, for example, that um, there's an, a, a few acres of ground um, in Montana on the border with Canada that public land that the United States is using as a big garbage dump turns out to be sacred soil to the Canadians. Maybe it, 
lots of maple trees or something. I don't know. You know. Anyway, they, they claim that this is sacred land to them, and they send the Canadian Army and the Royal Mounties and so on, and they occupy these acres, and they station thousands of Canadian soldiers on the Canadian side of the border and say they'll fight to the death for this thing. And clearly, in that kind of case, we should just cede the land and say, okay, you, you, you can have it. You know, we shouldn't kill a lot of people to, to retain a garbage dump. That's disproportionate. You can imagine more realistic examples. Um, Falklands War, interestingly, was, as I said, a war in which uh, really only combatants were under threat. Uh, in fact, there were only two civilian casualties in the whole of that war. Um, but suppose it had been necessary, just suppose it had been necessary for Britain to kill 100,000 Argentine soldiers to retain sovereignty over the Falklands Islands, then I think that would have been clearly a disproportionate war even though the only casualties would have been military casualties. So this is not something that the law of war would uh, recognize. It's not something that uh, the just war tradition has thought about. But there's a, a hypothetical version of a real case where I think it would be clear that the war would be disproportionate in what I'm calling the narrow sense. <coughs> so just bear in mind that if I'm right that there are these two distinct forms of proportionality, then there are two different ways in which war in response to lesser aggression might be disproportionate. We have to take account of both of those. Now the main argument that defenders of the traditional view <coughs> rely on is that what's threatened by lesser aggression, at least as I've characterized it, aren't harms that are really lesser at all. They are really major harms they're lesser really only to the individuals involved, but collectively they are great harms. For what's really at risk is the independence and self-determining character of a cultural and political community whose sovereignty, sovereignty and control, exclusive control over a certain territory is going to be threatened by the aggression. So that even if the individuals affected are harmed only in these lesser ways, and they can easily adapt to uh, the harms that they would experience as a result of the aggression and go on having lives that are very well worth living. Nevertheless, something of really transcendent value would have been lost if the aggression succeeds, and that is a way, an, a way of life that can be pursued unconstrained by externally imposed uh, restrictions. And this is why some of the defenders of the traditional view claim that the loss of sovereignty by a state is analogous to the death of an individual, and the loss of territory by a state is analogous to uh, the loss of a limb or something like that. They often appeal to uh, this kind of analogy, which Michael Walzer calls the domestic analogy. It's the idea that states are analogous to individual persons. They are sovereign individuals with certain rights, and that to uh, compromise the sovereignty of the state is analogous to the, 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 the killing or the enslavement uh, of, of a person. Now, I, I th myself think that the domestic analogy is just systematically misleading. States are not at all like persons. Uh, and states can go out of existence without anything particularly bad happening. Uh, 
I don't think anything bad happened when the Soviet Union went out of existence. It was nothing like the death of a person. It's not even like an instance of euthanasia or voluntary euthanasia, which would be the closest analogy, I think, in the case of the Soviet Union. The domestic analogy also has all kinds of pernicious implications in my view, so I think we should, it's just misleading and we should abandon it. But I think this argument that appeals to the collective value of self-determination involves an overvaluation of self-determination in a way that threatens to be really excessively permissive. And that's because citizenship in a state is only one source of collective identity or solidarity. There are numerous communities below the level of the state uh, that uh, actually may have greater significance for their members than mere citizenship in the state does. So people often form their identities around their membership in collectives that are sub-state collectives. Um, good examples of that would, well, uh, I mentioned the Soviet Union. Uh, think of uh, Yugoslavia in the 1990s. Tito and others had worked very hard to get people to have as their central form of collective identity their citizenship in the state of Yugoslavia. But as we saw in the 1990s, after decade and decade of efforts to uh, get people to think of themselves as Yugoslavs rather than Serbs and Croats, it's complete failure. The sub-state identities were the ones that turned out to be important there. But I think there are a lot of cases in which it's impermissible for sub-state groups to engage in mass killing as a means of achieving a greater level of collective self-determination. What we think is that peoples, nations, some collectives often simply have to do without full collective self-determination that comes with full sovereignty uh, as a state. And I guess what I think is that if there are limits to what a group of people with a strong sense of self-identity may permissibly do to attain full collective self-determination, then it has to be the case that there are corresponding limits to what uh, such a group of people may do to retain their full collective self-determination if the costs to others of their retaining that level of self-determination are sufficiently great. So what I think here is that the appeal to these collective goods of um, collective self-determination and collective identity and so on, this, this is important, but in, generally, in general it's not sufficiently important to support the traditional view that war is almost always permissible in response to lesser aggression. Having discussed the main argument that defenders of the traditional view appeal to, I want to turn now to some considerations that I think more strongly favor the idea that defensive war in response to lesser aggression can be proportionate and therefore permissible. First of all, one important factor is the number of victims. The number of victims of lesser aggression may be very large indeed. It may include the entire citizenship of the state that's the victim of the aggression, and it may actually also include members of future generations as well if the control or whatever or the uh, diminution of wealth that's imposed by the aggressor continues through uh, <coughs> a longer period of time. The question here though is, <coughs> given that each individual victim will suffer only lesser harms, <coughs> and 
And given that each individual ag lesser aggressor will be responsible for only a small part of the harm that each individual victim suffers, can any individual lesser aggressor be liable to be killed as a means of preventing him from inflicting those tiny harms on a very large number of people? So you might ask yourself, um, suppose a person is otherwise going to cause a barely perceptible discomfort to each of a thousand people. Would it be permissible to kill that person to prevent him from doing this, even if he's doing this completely wrongfully and culpably and maliciously and so on? I think everybody's view there would be no. Yeah. If all he's going to do is cause a small, pa small pain to each of a thousand people, that's not sufficient to make him liable to be killed. But let me suggest that there is actually an argument that challenges this intuition. It appeals to an example that Derek Parfit gave in his book Reasons and Persons. I hope some of you know that book. Um, the example uh, appeals to a case that he calls the harmless torturers. In the first instance, the, the, the harmless torturers aren't actually harmless. In, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the first instance, they, they deploy the traditional method of torturing. There are a thousand of these torturers, and each of them horribly tortures a single victim. So there are a thousand victims and a thousand torturers, and each torturer is harming one, one victim. Um, then for whatever reason, they decide that they're going to change their method. Maybe they have problems of conscience or something, so they figure out a new method to do their job. You've got each of the same thousand torturers, each of the same thousand victims, but according to the new method, what they do is that each torturer inflicts only one one-thousandth the level of pain of torture on each of the thousand victims. So you figure, imagine they do this with little buttons or something, so they each press a thousand buttons, inflict a tiny bit of pain on each of a thousand people. But all of them are doing this, so the end result is a thousand people are inflicting one one-thousandth of the pain of torture on a thousand victims, therefore you've got a thousand victims being tortured and a thousand torturers doing this. But in this case, each of the now harmless torturers can truthfully say that he's inflicting only a very, very tiny harm on no more than on, uh, only a tiny harm on any particular person. Now I think in the first case, when they're using the old method, most of us would agree that each of the harmless torturers is liable to be killed in defense of his victim. So if each torture victim could kill his torturer as a means of stopping the torture, I think that would be justifiable and the justification would be a liability justification. What about in the second case when they're using the new method? Suppose that somebody could kill all of the thousand harmless torturers, but that it's not possible to kill fewer than that. You can kill them all or none. Would it be permissible to do that? Well, the results would be exactly the same as it would be if each victim killed his torturer in the original case. A thousand torturers would be killed all thousand victims would be completely free of torture. So it seems to me if it's justified to kill them all in the first case, it must be justifiable to kill them all in the second case. Given that the justification would be a liability justification in the first case, it seems to me there must be a liability justification in the second case. But if that's true, notice what, what it shows. It shows that there can be cases in which people can be liable to be killed just to prevent each one of them from inflicting a tiny harm on each of a large number of people. 
That's interesting, I think, because at first we were all agreeing that that wasn't true. <coughs> now it is true. What's the difference? Well, I think there is actually a difference here between the harmless torturers and lesser aggressors that explains why the conclusion that we might arrive at about the harmless torturers doesn't extrapolate to the case of the lesser aggressors. And the difference is, is quite simple, and that is that the tiny harms inflicted by the harmless torturers are all contributions to torture. They are all contributions to harms suffered by individuals that are beyond some level of severity. But that's not true of lesser aggressors whose tiny harms are contributions only to lesser harms. Now, what that says to me is that the, the harmless torturers are actually liable to be killed, at least in certain circumstances, maybe not all of them and maybe not all the time and so on. We could go into the, the qualifications later on. But that lesser aggressors may not be and probably aren't. Now, I think this is a, actually a rather odd suggestion because what it implies is that whether a person is liable to be killed in defense of somebody else depends not only on what he's doing himself, but what on other people happen to be doing. Um, that may seem an odd conclusion, but I actually think it's right. Uh, that's I think what we have to, there's something here that we need to recognize about the nature of individual liability. To see this, Just imagine two versions of, of this case. In each case, you've got the same thousand, pe same thousand people, and each of them is inflicting a tiny harm on each of a thousand people. In case one, all the victims are, all the victims of all the thousand torturers are the same thousand people. So that's just the harmless torturers. Um, now imagine another version in which all the victims of these thousand people, who, each of whom is inflicting a tiny harm on each of a thousand people, all the victims are completely different people. So there are a million victims of these thousand people. That's just like the original case I gave you when I said, imagine a person who would inflict a tiny harm on each of a thousand people. Do we think he's liable to be killed? And we all, I think, said no. Now this case I've just given you is a thousand instances of that original uh, person who's just inflicting uh, tiny harms on each of a thousand people. It really matters whether the victims are all the same people or whether they're different people. If they're all the same people, the, the, the inflictors of the harm are liable to be killed. If the victims are all different people, um, they're not liable to be killed. But what each inflictor of harm is doing is exactly the same in the two cases. In one case, he's liable to be killed. In the other, he's not liable to be killed. And the reason is that whether he's liable to be killed depends on whether the harms he's causing are uh, contributions to greater harms that are, are being supplemented by the contributions of other people. Okay, so I think that the appeal to the harmless torturers doesn't actually help here. We've still got a problem in, in understanding what the importance of the number of victims is. Uh, let me suggest a way in which I think the number of victims is actually important. They're, it's not actually important to the level of liability of the lesser aggressors. It's important to something else. Here's one other Im 
important difference between the case of the harmless torturers and the case of lesser aggression. In the case of the harmless torturers, the harm that each one of them inflicts is completely <coughs> independent of what any of the others are doing. So if we kill half the harmless torturers, that's going to do nothing to prevent the other half of them <coughs> from continuing to inflict the pain that they're inflicting. But that's not true of lesser aggressors. It's never necessary in defensive war to kill every single combatant on the other side. You just need to kill a certain proportion of them and then the other side will surrender. Often that may be quite a small proportion. It may be one-tenth or one-fifth or one-sixth or something like that of the enemy combatants and then the war ends. There are always lots and lots of surviving veter veterans of wars, at least nowadays. Not, not in the Punic Wars and that kind of thing, but um, nowadays. We don't kill everybody. Um, so that's an important fact. If the number of victims of lesser aggression is very large, but the number of lesser aggressors who would have to be killed in order to defeat the aggression is comparatively small, then we could get a justification for, less, for a defensive war against lesser aggression that would take the following form. It's what I call a combined justification because it combines a liability justification with a lesser evil justification. So you imagine that each lesser aggressor is liable to a certain degree of harm to prevent him from inflicting lesser harms on the victims. I mean, they're all liable to a punch in the nose or a kick in the shin or even something even more serious than that. So that degree of harm, whatever it may be, can be justified on the basis of liability. And then there's as it were, the, the additional harm between whatever level of harm that the soldiers are liable to and whatever the harm of death is. So there's an additional harm that has to be justified beyond what they are liable to. And it may well be that that additional harm to each lesser aggressor can be justified as the lesser evil in the circumstances. That is, you can have a lesser evil or necessity justification for the infliction of that further increment of the harm. So what I'm saying in effect is that the justification for the infliction of the harm is divided into two. Part of the harm is justified in one way and another part of the harm is justified in another way. Um, so the justification is a combination of a liability justification and a lesser evil justification. Now take the lesser evil part of that justification. There's a certain amount of harm here that has to be justified that we're inflicting on somebody who's not liable to it because it's beyond the liability of the combatant. But now it seems to me the, the aggregate harm that the victims will suffer if the aggression isn't defeated becomes relevant in assessing the proportionality of that additional increment of harm that's going to be inflicted on each of the lesser aggressors. This is actually, I think, an instance of a wide proportionality assessment. We're assessing the justification for inflicting harm to which the victims are not liable and we're weighing that harm against the harm that's going to be prevented. And it may well be that small harms to a large number of people actually do aggregate and outweigh the additional harms to each combatant. The justification for that additional increment of harm is not a liability justification, but just a pure lesser evil justification. So that's an example of what I call a combined justification, and I'm inclined to think that in 
Most instances in which war against lesser aggression is justified, the full justification is going to be a combined justification and not either a pure kind of liability-based justification, which is the kind of justification I think you have in a fully just war, and lesser evil justification, which is kind of harder to, harder to make a case for. Okay, so that, that I, I hope that's clear. That's the way in which I think the number of victims is most likely uh, relevant to the justification for the resort to war against lesser aggression. A couple of other relevant considerations I want to go through are, uh, first of all, the fact that the lesser aggression is backed by a conditional threat to inflict greater harms on people in the event of resistance. Um, when the lesser aggressors send their army across the, the frontier, when they want to take the oil fields or whatever and they show up, they can't say, right, surrender your oil fields. If you don't, we'll go home. They have to say, surrender your oil fields. If you don't, we'll start killing people or something to that effect. What I think is that this conditional threat to inflict more severe harm has to affect the liability of the lesser aggressors. And to see that, you can imagine uh, a comparison between a thief on the one hand and a mugger on the other. So suppose I'm sitting in an outdoor cafe and I've got my wallet sitting on the table and it's got $10 in it, and a thief runs along and snatches my wallet up and is going to run away with it. And suppose the only way that I can stop him from stealing my wallet is to shoot him in the leg. I'm an American, remember, so um, <laughs> naturally if I'm at a cafe, I'm going to be well armed um, <laughs> and uh, will have the capacity to shoot this person in the leg. Now, my claim is this is disproportionate. This would be harm that would be disproportionate in a narrow sense. But now imagine a mugger. The mugger accosts me in a blind alley. I can't get away. And he's got a gun and he says, right, uh, give me your wallet or I'll use whatever level of force is necessary to take it from you. Now again, I'm an American. I have a little derringer in my pocket or something like that. I just pull the trigger and shoot him in the leg and he crumples to the ground and then I walk off. And, but I don't have to kill him or anything. It's just shoot him in the leg. Um, in that case, it's at least arguable that it might be permissible for me to shoot this man. After all, there are a couple of differences between the mugger and the thief. One is that the mugger is actually threatening rights of mine that the thief isn't. He's pointing a gun at me. He's raised the objective probability that I'm going to be wrongfully killed. He's not only increased my risk, but he's violated my right not to be treated in this more severely or seriously wrong way. And he's much more highly culpable than the thief because he is actually willing to shoot me or kill me or whatever for the sake of something very small, namely $10. And you have to be really culpable to do that. So here's the, the mugger is violating rights of mine that the thief doesn't, and he's more culpable than the thief. Both of these considerations, I think, show that the level of harm to which the mugger is liable is greater than that to which the thief is liable, even though the initial harm the harm that's unconditionally threatened to me, namely the loss of mine $10, is the same in both cases. And so what's true of the mugger, I think, is also true of lesser aggressors because they necessarily are backing up their uh, unconditional threat to 
inflict these lesser harms by a, thre a threat to inflict greater harms in the event that they meet with resistance. Okay, so that's another consideration that I think can favor uh, defensive war in response to lesser aggression. Yet another is one that will have been obvious to you all along, and that is that what seems to be lesser aggression may not actually be lesser aggression at all. It may well be that um, the lesser aggressors are masking um, uh, more ambitious aims, and we think that all they want is our oil fields, whereas what they want is something uh, greater than that. Or it may be, for example, that um, though they start off having only these lesser ambitions, if they see us capitulate immediately without resistance, they may then be tempted to uh, make further demands and take, take more from us. Um, this is what in, in old military history would, was called salami tactics. You take a little bit, and then you take a little bit more, and then you take a little bit more, and in no instance does, does what's being taken seem worth defending. But in the end, the aggressor gets a lot. Um, this, this actually is the thought that uh, lies behind Locke's discussion of defense against thieves. Uh, Locke says that you have a right to kill somebody who just, just is stealing your wallet. So he, Locke would have thought that I could kill the, uh, a thief who's taking my wallet, or maybe not the one who's just running away. But um, any, any thief who, who has me in his power, it's permissible for me to kill him rather than remain in his power because I don't know that if I'm in his power he won't exercise it to the full and perhaps even go so far as to kill me. Now I think the response to this uh, claim is just to accept it and to concede that to the extent that there is a genuinely serious risk that lesser aggression won't be lesser aggression but will be major aggression, that risk or that probability um, has to be taken into consideration and may very well justify defensive war. Uh, might phrase that by saying that whenever what looks like lesser aggression really does have a serious risk of turning into major aggression, we can't really regard it as lesser aggression because we have to multiply the uh, what we're seeing as the likely harm by the probability that it'll turn out to be greater harm. Um, so this is, this is one important thing that we need to bear in mind about lesser aggression, but there are lots of cases in which lesser aggression is pretty clearly lesser, and we can know that in advance. Um, again, I'll re revert to the example of the Falklands War. Argentina invaded the Falkland Islands. They wanted to take those islands from Britain, but nobody thought that once they had got the Falklands Islands, or if they had got the Falklands Islands, the, you know, the Shetland Islands and the Orkneys and the Channel Islands would be next, you know, the Argentine steamboats or whatever would be com coming up the, the uh, channel. And I think the same was true of a number of other wars that I think of as wars of lesser aggression. I think that the uh, American war in Iraq was an unjust invasion of Iraq, but I don't think that the United States was, as I said earlier, interested in killing or enslaving lots of people there. And the whole thing would have been a lot better both for, for everyone in Iraq had they not gone to war defensively against the United States. 
The final consideration I want to mention here is deterrence, and that again is something that no doubt you've already thought of on your own. If states capitulate to lesser aggression, uh, whenever defense would be disproportionate, that's going to diminish or weaken deterrence against aggression generally and against uh, lesser aggression in particular. And in fact, interestingly, again reverting to the Falklands War, the major argument I think that Mrs. Thatcher gave in uh, defending the idea that Britain was going to go to war was that it was important to stand up to bullies, that it was really important always to, 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 to enforce the norms of international good behavior by responding to aggression with force. Claims about deterrence are of course always speculative. I, I think nobody uh, can cite any instance in which um, some contemplated aggression was actually deterred by the thought that the victim might be as tough as Mrs. Thatcher. Um, you know, there are no recorded instances of somebody thinking, God, I really wanted to invade and take over here, but you know, what if they were like Mrs. Thatcher? But what we do know is that if no one ever went to war in response to lesser aggression, if lesser aggression was always just free access to taking lesser goods that you want, then we'd have no deterrence at all and there would be a lot of lesser aggression. And that would be a very bad world to live in when states felt free to uh, engage in aggression as long as it was low-level aggression. So one possibility here is that what would otherwise be instances of disproportionate war in response to lesser aggression are at least in some cases proportionate once you take the value of deterrence into account. In other words, deterrence itself or the restoration of deterrence or the enhancement of deterrence is itself a good that weighs in the balance in determining whether war is proportionate. Now suppose that's true. There's, even if that's true, there's an interesting problem here. It's really a practical problem rather than a philosophical problem, but there's a, there is a problem here about predictability. And that is that if we have a rule that says go to war in response to lesser aggression, as long as it's proportionate when you take deterrence into account, and we suppose that people are doing all this in a reliable sort of way, then potential aggressors can know that, they, that there won't be a defensive war um, if defensive war would be disproportionate. So they'll maybe only go to war, maybe they'll engage in aggression only when it's predictable to them that a defensive response by the victims would be disproportionate and if they could assume that the victims would be morally scrupulous or whatever. Or if they could think, if they had some reason to expect that the victims would be morally scrupulous, they'd been reading you know, McMahon's lecture on lesser aggression and were <coughs> convinced by the arguments, then the aggressors could just try to make it the case that um, defensive action would be disproportionate. Um, you know, they could strap a bunch of children on their tanks or something like that. Um, make it the case somehow. Or, or alternatively, if they've read the paper and they agree that there is a, a narrow proportionality constraint on war, then what the Argentines could have done was to send, you know, a half a million soldiers to occupy the Falklands Islands. They'd all be sort of sardined into the 
to, to the Falklands Islands, so you just have to kill all of them, and then it would have been disproportionate even in the narrow sense. Uh, like I say, that's th there's a, there's a practical problem here about um, public recognition of any criterion for determining when it would be permissible to go to war in response to lesser aggression and when it wouldn't be, because any kind of public recognition of a criterion would signal to uh, aggressors when they could safely go to war and when they couldn't, and then you really wouldn't have deterrence. Um, Let me mention one final problem, and then I'm, then I'm going to stop. I'm sorry, I'm going on a bit longer here than I think I should have. But um, suppose we know that there are going to be a number of instances of lesser aggression in the future. And we know that maybe it's going to be proportionate because of the importance of deterrence to go to war in some of these instances, but clearly not in all. Um, but what if we're really not going to get enough deterrence by going to war in those cases in which it seems to be proportionate? That uh, there's, gonna be, there's, there's, there's going to be inevitable disproportionality if we go to war um, uh, in a number of cases. And if, if we go to war only in those cases, we're really not going to get a sufficiently high level of deterrence. What do we do then? What I think is that a lot depends on whether the disproportionality would be narrow disproportionality or wide disproportionality. If we can't get enough deterrence uh, within the constraints of wide proportionality so that in order to get the kind of level of deterrence we want, we'd have to kill a large number of innocent people as a side effect, then I think we really do have cases in which um, it's impermissible to go to war. Because we've already taken into account in our proportionality calculations, the good of enhancing or maintaining deterrence. But if defensive war in these cases would be disproportionate only in the narrow sense, that is only in terms of the harm that it would cause to uh, enemy aggressors, then I think it's possible that we could construct a lesser evil justification or more precisely what I call the combined justification uh, for wars really purely for the sake of deterrence. Because then what we would be doing is uh, uh, part of the harm we would be inflicting would be justified by liability. And if the remainder could be justified uh, as proportionate in a wide sense in relation to the importance of deterrence, then we may have a justification. Okay, so that's, re that's really all I had to say substantively. I've tried to show that there are a number of uh, considerations that if we take into account, we may well be able to come up with a justification for resorting to war in response to lesser aggression in some cases. These are going to be cases with a large number of victims, a smaller number of uh, lesser aggressors. We have to take account of proportionality, the increase in the level of liability that's brought about because of the, the, the conditional threat of, of uh, serious harm, and so on. But we're still going to have cases in which uh, I think that defensive war in response to lesser aggression is going to be disproportionate and therefore wrong. So I think that the, neither of the kind of extreme views that I mentioned earlier, but, but which are the ones that, most, that a lot of people take, are defensible. Thanks. <laughs>